0: This episode of the Art of Manliness Podcast is brought to you by Flint and Tinder exclusively at Huckberry.com. It is fall. It is time to bust out the jeans, the button-down oxfords, the henleys, and of course, a hoodie. And you can find all of these fall staples with Flint Tinder exclusively at Huckberry.com. My whole wardrobe at this point is pretty much Flint Tinder, Flint Tinder jeans, Flint Tinder button-downs, Flint Tinder Henleys, of course, their famous 10-year hoodie. What I love about Flint Tinder, they all look great. It's classic and it's all made in the USA, sourced from materials from the USA as well. So, if you'd like to try out Flint Tinder and a discount, go to Huckberry.com. Check out the Flint Tinder line, pick up some things, and use code Art15 to get 15% off your first purchase from Huckberry. Again, that's Huckberry.com. Check out Flint Tinder. Use code Art15 at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase and help support the Art of Manly's podcast. <laughs> Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The standard route to success in modern life goes as follows. Work hard in high school, score high on your SAT, get into a good college, do well in your classes, get a good job. For some people, that path works, but for a lot of people, it leaves them disengaged and frustrated because it doesn't actually lead to a life of fulfillment. My guest today has spent his academic career studying individuals who have bucked the standard formula for achievement and found success on their own terms. His name is Todd Rose. He's a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the co-author, of the book, Dark Horse, Achieving Success in the Pursuit of Fulfillment. We begin our conversation discussing what Todd calls the standardization covenant, including how it developed to serve institutions rather than individuals, and why following the standard path often leads to frustration. Todd then explains his idea of an alternative, Dark Horse Covenant, and what it looks like theoretically and in the lives of those who followed it. He then walks us through the steps that Dark Horses follows to find success and fulfillment on their own terms, including focusing on micromotives to figure out where you fit, making decisive choices, creating your own options, and trying new strategies until you find something that works. We end our conversation with how Todd would like to see the dark horse dynamic incorporated into our educational system. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash dark horse. Todd joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Todd Rose, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you are a co-author of a book called Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment. So the book's all about this. It's all about people who gain success through unconventional ways. Before that, let's juxtapose that with how people typically think or achieve success. You call this in the book, you call this path to success that we've all heard about, know about, and probably followed the standardization covenant. What does the standardization covenant look like in your eyes? Well, I mean, I,
1: when I think about what success looks like in our standardized systems, it is basically you try to, you know, the destination, you know, what you're going to go after, you work really hard and you stay the course. You show grit and determination. And, but in the end, it really is about trying to compete to be the same as everybody else, only better. And it has very little to do with who you are and what you really care about.
0: So you know, this is basically the path that's been set out for almost, I would say, 60, 70 years, since the end of World War II, probably. You go to college, you get a job, you do really well at your job, you'll go up the hierarchy, and eventually you can retire with a gold watch and you know, drive a <laughs> Cadillac. Exactly. And, and by the way, like we
1: call it a corporate ladder for a reason. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a one path and, and you climb as high as you can go, but you're, you're competing against everyone else for the exact same prize.
0: And that corporate ladder goes all the way down to, like, you start learning this in elementary school. Like, you understand, like, people get ranked in so, in certain orders based on how well you are. And as you said, everyone's doing the exact same thing, but they're just doing it better. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and you know, it's, it's on purpose. So the idea of this standardization covenant is, you know, as a society... At the beginning of the industrial age, we basically gave up on our individuality and we said, look, it's just more manageable if a few people control the system and we decide what the paths are like and what the criteria is and we can kind of manage it. We only need, say, three ballerinas or we need five engineers or whatever. It's less about you and what you're capable of and more about filling some preordained slots.
0: Right, it's it's for the, the standardization uh, was developed to benefit institutions like right. government corporations. Even if like a ballet could be an institution as well, you just need a certain slots, and we're going to look for the cream of the crop. Right, as they see it, yeah. Well, while, while that's still going on, we still hear this talk about you need to find fulfillment in your work, and the standardization. Covenant talks about this, but they talk about it in different ways. How do you achieve fulfillment or a sense of purpose within this, where you're just doing what everyone else is doing, but only better?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think everybody wants, in an ideal world, they want to be successful and happy, right? They want to live fulfilled lives. And you know what we've been taught is that if you just fit the mold, climb the ladder, and actually achieve excellence within the system, that fulfillment comes... As a consequence of that, you know, in some ways you can think, well, maybe that's true. If I'm excellent, I'll be fulfilled as well. But I think what we're seeing now is generations of people who have actually arrived at that place and realized, look, I, I, I made it according to society, but I'm deeply unhappy. I'm not fulfilled. And so I think the game is up.
0: Yeah. You've, I think everyone's met those people who've, achi- who've achieved success in their field, doctors, surgeons, attorneys, the top of their field, making lots of money and they're just miserable. Yeah.
1: And, and it's, it's, it's like the worst part about it, which is to say, well, that's nice, you're doing something that you're obviously good at, but you, you get one life and you know it, it, in a sense like we're here and we our ability to live a life. and what you really want are people who are able to find passion and convert that into purpose and turn that purpose into, into contribution and achievement. And it's just what, what we find is that it's just really hard to do at scale if you've standardized the whole system.
0: And the other part of the standardization covenant is that you have to know, like, you have to work at what you're doing for a long time to get there, perhaps, right? And you have to know where you want to go at a really young age, like when you're 18. It's like, well, you go to college. Well, okay, you need to pick out what your major you're going to study, and this is where you're going to go into your career. Or if you're going to medical school, you have to know that you're going to be in school for seven years, even if you have no experience with medicine. You might find out you might not like it, but if you want to do that, you you, you sort of yeah. have to grit it out and, and keep doing it. You're going to find out the hard way, and either suffer through a life. Like I, I actually
1: have a a, a friend who's a, a very very good lawyer who confided to me not too long ago that he wished he had chosen a different profession, and I kept thinking, you know, but but he's got student loan debt. He makes pretty good money, so he can't really, you know, like to start over. And you think wow, like how sad is that, that because you achieved, you're sort of trapped. And I think we do this at such an early age, you know, those of us, you know, I have two boys and like, but the time we, the number of times people ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, I'm like 14, why are you asking me this? As if as if somehow, if you haven't already nailed down which of these predetermined destinations you're going to strive for, something's wrong
0: with you. Right, and you highlight research in our book that, you know, we our personalities aren't even really set or just not like not till like our late mid to late 20s right so it's like you're asking an 18 year old who's still whose adult brain is still developing hey you got to pick the career that you're going to do when you're 40 when you might be a completely different person and you're going to be stuck with that right you're going to be you think about
1: we're constantly changing the things that matter to us and who we are especially at that age and then the reality is that the environment's changing so if I decide, yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer or whatever, but why am I making that choice? Is it because I have an uncle that's a lawyer or because I'm told that this is the safe sort of path and it's respectable? You think about all the really interesting sort of careers right now. You think about like something like a, an app developer. That that thing that idea didn't even exist 12, 13 years ago. That wasn't a thing. It, it, it's like the idea that you're somehow going to peg in your mind something 15, 20 years down the road. And then go that direction. The reason it's so toxic is that it takes your your eye off of what you should be focused on, which is maximizing the opportunities in front of you based on
0: who you really are. And another part of the, the standardization covenant that you write about in Detail in the book is that it rests on this the premise of, of meritocracy, right? That yeah. we reward talent and hard work. But you and your co-author make this really compelling case that meritocracies, or at least how they are in the standardization covenant where there's this you know, ladder you follow, um, doesn't really reward talent and hard work. Uh, explain that.
1: Yeah. So it, look, the one we have right now, and by the way, it's it's pretty uh, timely given the college admission scandal and you know, <laughs> the kind of things going on where it's pretty clear it's not just simply about who, who deserves to be there. But, but when you have a standardized system, so think about right now, if we just use the college example, it's not really how talented you are. Picasso's it wouldn't have got into Stanford's visual arts program unless he had great SAT scores. It doesn't matter what else he had to offer. So we've narrowed this thing down to a single dimension or a couple of things, and we're not trying to we're not trying to understand what people are good at. We're just basically force ranking them. The SAT is bell curved. It guarantees half the people fail, even if they're all qualified. When you think about like most of these institutions, like universities they have a scarcity model of quality. They're trying to educate as few people as possible. And then they call that quality. And so basically, we, get, we end up getting uh, ranked on one dimension on something they've decided, and then they pick a few people and they call that good. But the reality is we have a lot more to offer. People are deeply individual. Our talents are far more expansive than what fits on, an, on a single test. And if we were serious about helping people really develop their talents and make contributions, we certainly wouldn't create this kind of
0: system. So, okay, the standardization covenant is this idea that we've all sort of been enmeshed in since childhood that you you go up the ladder, you get the degree, you do all the things so you can be better than everyone else so you can get whatever at the end, right? You talk about something called the dark horse covenant. What is the dark horse covenant?
1: So, it it it's a different social contract and 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 I'll just tell you as as background, you know, like the point of the book was, you know, as as you said at the start, we just started studying people who were incredible at what they do, um, but who didn't follow the standardized path, and just trying to figure out who are these people and how do they do it? Is it just like dumb luck? Nobody should listen to them at all, or might there be some things we could learn? And you know, the book is really about the fact that, in fact, there are some common things that really make them capable of pursuing a different kind of life. So out of that you realize wait a minute if it's not just about these folks it's about all of us then we can start thinking about wait what kind of covenant would we make with ourselves as a people if we wanted to live more fulfilling lives. And 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 the dark horse covenant would be is simply this instead of you know know your destination work hard and just stay that standardized course it is about harnessing your individuality in the pursuit of fulfillment to achieve excellence. And the difference there is pretty stark that it is about knowing who you are. Like your individuality matters and it's not selfishness. It's just your distinctiveness. And you would have an obligation to actually convert that into a fulfilling life and then make a contribution with that. And in return, our society owes you the creation of good fit. We owe you to, that we create good educational environments that actually match who you are and help develop you rather than just batch process you. And and we create contexts at work that allow you to thrive and, and contribute the best. And it, that seems almost obvious. Of course, you would want that. But it's, it stands in stark contrast to this idea that you really don't matter. The system matters and you're just a, a cog. And for me, the important thing is, is that we just have to remember that the existing social contract we have, the standardization covenant, we we created. Nobody forced it on us. Like we agreed as a people, our you know our great grandparents did that this was an okay trade-off, um, and so we can remake it tomorrow if we want to.
0: So. You throughout the book you you give examples of these dark horses, people who gain success in very unconventional ways, where they've found fulfillment and uh, and and purpose with their work. What are some notable examples? Who are some notable examples of some dark horses that you covered in the book? So um,
1: from the outset, uh, it was funny because whenever we were thinking about these dark horses, the easy ones to figure out were all famous people. You know, like. um, And then, it, like Richard Branson, who I, I really like as a person, I, I think he's a great guy, and he is a classic example of a dark horse. But I grew up in in rural America, and and in in pretty poor. And for me, I said, you know, I don't, I, I like these people, but I want to talk to everyday people who didn't have a lot of money and didn't have a ton of connections, but still managed to do this because I thought if we focus there would be likely to find patterns that would be useful for everyone. So that's what we did. So we tried really hard not to find any sort of name brands. But that said, we studied hundreds of people from all walks of life, as wide a range of professions as we could find, everything from, you know, experts at wine to embalmers, right? Like to uh, you know, closet organizers. But, you know, some of the people that were just remarkable, interestingly, they kind of break down into like two kinds of dark horses. The one that you're probably imagining is the one that They they struggle early, they fail early, and then suddenly they just catch fire and they're amazing. And we we found plenty of those. For example, we uh, talked to uh, a woman who dropped out of school in high school, had a kid early on, was working in a fast food joint in her teens and early twenties. And you flash forward today, she's an internationally respected astronomer who has discovered a planet, discovered an asteroid and did all of that, including publishing in like the journal Science, never having gone to college. She still doesn't even have a high school diploma. We The other kind of dark horse that we found, which I think is even more general, were these people who were really actually fantastic at what they do. They were the people who you would say, boy, by society standards, they're successful, who reach a point in their life, they're like, this is, I'm just not happy. I'm not fulfilled. And they make these incredible pivots into stuff that you're like, Really, that's where you went, and then they go off, and then you just do amazing things, and you still don't see them coming. So, for example, spoke to another woman who had actually—you would have thought—was acing the standard path. She was raised by the classic tiger mom parents, and she she finished high school at 15, finished college at 19, and then she landed a really sweet, high-profile job at one of the top consulting firms when she was 20, and she was like had this just like stellar career right in front of her. Yet a few years later, she's wakes up and recognizes she's living a life based on her parents' view of success, and she's not happy. So she makes a decision to pursue what mattered to her, makes a pivot. Today, she is a chef and the mastermind behind one of the most acclaimed supper clubs in the country.
0: No, that's awesome. My favorite that you, you talk about the highlight of the book is the lady who, um, Susan, she's in a, a crappy mm. marriage. Yeah. She went to a concert and th- at that concert, she decided, I'm going to be a sound engineer. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it, it, she went on this path that took, you know, a, I think more than a decade. Yep, yep. Uh, and she ended up being the, the princes. The artist formerly known as Prince or is he now just Prince? Or he was, Yeah, incredible, it. right? It, like, the sound engineer for him. And, and, what, what
1: I love, she's one of my favorite people in the world. This is one of the fun things about this project is you meet people and you don't want to be them. Like, I don't want to be a sound engineer, but knowing her makes me want to be a better person. She taught us that living a fulfilling life isn't all upside. Sometimes you have to get yourself out of really bad, you know, abusive relationships. You got to, you know, there's a hole you're in. And that's that's the starting point. But she, she said, I don't even know why. She didn't want to be a performer. She knew that. And so she's like, I don't know this sound engineer, but but what's so interesting and and lays out we lay out in the book in, in greater detail the kind of choices she's gonna make to to really live that kind of life, including being a secretary at the place where they train people because she couldn't afford to go, but she could get enough training and convincing the military to send her some technical manuals <laughs> so that she could keep getting more training and then just doing the things that need to be done. And then what I love is you know, there she is getting to share this moment, actually back in the LA Coliseum where she left because her husband told her she had to be home in time or she was going to get beat. There she is with Prince, back there, enjoying this incredible success with Purple Rain. And to be able to live that life. And then as, as you see in the book, you know she goes on to do other things because she realizes this is a never-ending process.
0: Yeah, she got her PhD to be a
1: professor. Yeah. Like, and she went to school in her 40s because it was like, there's something, the next challenge. And that's what I love about this fulfillment orientation, which is these dark horses. I, I was always surprised. I really genuinely thought that to be a dark horse to buck this standardized system, you would have to be someone like Richard Branson. I mean, I I know Sir Richard. He's he's amazing, and he really loves bucking the system. I think it's just part of what really gets him off. If if it's if someone else wants him to do it, he's probably not going to do it. I thought that that. Most people would have to be like that. You'd have to really be able to gut it out. And that's just not what we found. And instead, what, what, without, without fail, every one of these dark horses got on their own path because they bailed on society's view of success. They bailed on the standardization idea. And they, to a person said, success to me is about pursuing fulfillment, accomplishing things that truly matter to me. And since we're so individual, the second you commit to that, it's unavoidable that you're actually going to have to get off the beaten path once in a while. And so just what we see is time and time again, these people being able to do that and, and creating very reliable paths. And so what I liked is it would be one thing to say, oh, cool, pursue fulfillment. That's the kind of life you want to live. But what you see with these dark horses is they reveal a set of things you need to know that when you know them, it makes it a very, very stable, reliable path to success
0: and happiness. Well, let's walk through um, how you can figure out what will bring you fulfillment. Because like, mm-hmm. So I think one thing about making fulfillment your goal, it's great, but there's also, it's kind of it can be a two-edged sword because you're like, man, that's a lot of pressure. Like, you know, because it's, it's existential. Sure. I think some people, that's why some people find mm-hmm. um, the standardization covenant comforting. It's like, well, here's this thing. It's already set for me. I don't have to really think about it. I'll just do it. Um, yeah. So how can you figure out what will bring you fulfillment so you don't have that existential angst yeah. where you're like lying in bed and it's like, am I really doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and and look, the, the reality is, is that pursuing a fulfilling life does have more responsibility. There's no autopilot version of this. No one can give it to you. You have to earn it yourself. But the I, I can almost guarantee you, like as someone who's who's a fan of what you all do, I I, I'm going to go ahead and almost guarantee the people listening and the people on on the website are people who actually care about this kind of stuff. Your self-improvement and trying to like, you know, live their best life. So here's the thing in the abstract, it can feel overwhelming because absent the reliable, even if it's not that great sort of beacons that society gives us, what do we anchor around? So what we found is that there's really like these four things that they know that, that make this work. Um, and they'll sound pretty straightforward, but look, the, the first thing, and it's the most important thing is you absolutely have to know what motivates you. And and we call it micromotives in the book because it was incredible how how individual they are. When you think of motives, you tend to think of these, a small number of them that are just big, like, okay, wait, I'm competitive. Yeah, that's true. I'm pretty competitive, you know, or I like money or I like collaboration. But in reality, the things that truly get you up in the morning can be incredibly particular and, and subtle and may not really apply to really almost anybody else. You know, for example, uh, we, we talked to a guy who, I, I mean, no kidding, his primary motive, I mean, it's just incredible, was aligning physical objects with his hands. I actually, when, when we talked to him, I, I thought, this can't be true. First of all, it, it doesn't sound remotely motivating to me at all. And it just seems so particular. Really, that must, must represent something more general. But it was really specific for him and it really mattered. And he had he'd been able to convert that into, into some engineering work that had been amazing and then left that work and it fell apart on him. And then he he came back in his life later and realized he's now like the top upholstery repair person in New York and he loves it. You got to know these things about yourself because you can you can be successful by society standards without knowing who you are and what matters, but you can't live a fulfilling life not systematically because it's about making choices and and accomplishing things that matter to you. So the question would be like well then how do I how do I start to figure out what motivates me? It seems in think about it schools don't help. We never ask kids ever about what really matters to them. <laughs> we we tell them what they should care about, but what we found and I'll give you the simple version here and the book kind of elaborates more on it. The most I, I mean it will sound simple. I I promise you any listener that just puts this into play in their life will be shocked at how big of a return on investment you'll get. So it's simply like this. If you think about the things that you enjoy doing right now, whether they're at work, whether they're at home, recreation, whatever. If you start making a list of those things and ask yourself why, why do I like this? So my example, like I love football. Love it. I'm passionate about it. I played it when I could. I watch it every time. Like, you know, luckily I'm in Boston, so I've I've got the Patriots for quite a few years. So it's been, it's a good good run. But um but then it's why, right? What is it about? So is it because it's competition? Is it because it's outdoors? Is it because it's collaborative, a team sport? Is it because it's strategy involved? You and I could both like football for very, very different reasons. If you know the why, it's everything. Because if you do this a couple of times with the things that you enjoy, you'll start to see patterns. And that, those patterns become your real motives. And now that I know, if it's because I like collaboration and strategy, well, you know what? There's a whole bunch of other things that can also be fulfilling to me, and I understand how to find my way to those
0: things. I love it. And I, I, you gave the example that I liked uh, in the book was if someone who likes birds. Well, I just love birds. But like, well, you might like how birds look, and that could take you down one path, or you might like how birds sound, and that could take someone down another path.
1: It, it, and in fact, it did. As you're saying, Like, it, it's, it's so remarkable because they get so specific, and I'm like, really? There are actually people... Who, who end up becoming what we call like birders. There's whole professions where people like go out and discover birds. And they actually are like really interesting and important careers. I, for the life of me, would be like, I, I would rather dig ditches. I can't even imagine that. But what we found is some people were like, no, all that matters to me is the visual aspect of it. They, they, they could care less how they sound. And then some people are like, I don't even want to see them. I need to hear them. And I, they could imagine the waveform of the sound. And it, w- it was funny, um, after we wrote the book, there was a, a more serious conversation going on in Australia about someone who wanted to to actually was claiming they wanted to have assisted suicide and they had to leave the country. And one of the things the gentleman said, he was like, you know, hundred, and he said, Look, I used to love birds. I I um I, I I've lost my sight and all I can do is hear them, and I don't care about that. Like he'd rather like end his life than have to just hear birds. We, there it's what motivates us is incredibly specific. And no, nobody can tell you what it is, but you can figure it out for yourself. And when you start to get a hold of that, then suddenly making choices about your life becomes a heck of a lot easier. And that idea that feels scary as if you're going to drive yourself off a cliff suddenly doesn't feel as risky or scary anymore.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Halloween is on the way, which means it's time to break out the rubber spiders fake cobwebs, and jack-o'-lanterns. But if you've got family, you might be dealing with something a little scarier, shopping for life insurance. the idea of looking for life insurance intimidates you, try PolicyGenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the PolicyGenius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And PolicyGenius doesn't just do life insurance. They also can help you find the right home, auto, and disability insurance. Now, when I was shopping for life insurance, disability insurance, and all those different types of insurance, wish I would have had something like Policy Genius because it was a big hassle. I had to go to multiple places, fill out all their paperwork. It was annoying. I would have loved to have Policy Genius do all my insurance shopping in one place. So this October, take the scariness out of buying life insurance with Policy Genius. Go to policygenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Don't do that if you're driving the car. That would be bad. So policygenius.com, get quotes, apply in minutes. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Also by ZipRecruiter, hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Ultra's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire director of coffee yes, a director of coffee, for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had so many great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. If you'd like to try this, if you're a business owner, hiring manager at a big corporation, you can try this for free. You got to go to my special URL. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Well, that's the next step, choices. And this is all about finding fit for your what motivates you. Yeah. And this is counterintuitive to, I mean, you kind of hear talk of this in the standardization coven. You want to find a job where you fit, but like it's like you have to fit in a certain way, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you have a predetermined cho- um, choice, right? Right, um, And you got to fit there. How is choosing differ in the dark horse covenant?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things that that we saw with dark horses with the role of choice that I think is super important to appreciate. Um, the first is is just simply that that actually recognizing that choice is really important. Because in the standardization covenant, we're actually actively discouraged but the number of real choices that we have in our life. I mean, if I go to the grocery store, I have a lot of choice because it's a market and people want to sell me stuff. When you think about the institutions that are about developing who you are, you have very, very few choices. And so what you end up doing is hoarding them and you get them and, and you hedge and it's like, ah, I, I don't want to make a mistake on this one. Like, what college am I going to go to? What major will I have? Right? What's my first job? Dark horses, are, they just, they look for choice everywhere, the, even small ones. And they recognize that that there's never such thing as just an equivalent option. One, one choice is always going to be closer to fulfillment than the other. And they make them. They just, they don't hedge. They figure out what the thing is and then they jump in and do it. And, and look, when they're not always right, there were plenty of examples where people said, Wow, that just didn't turn out to be the right thing. But they are they learn from it and they make a better choice next time. And so what, what's fascinating about that is that um, from the outside, it looks like they're just taking risky bets. It, it just really does. Even when we were talking, to them, I'm like, wow, you sold everything and went to rural England to like learn about horticulture. And you were like, wow, that seems like there could have been a better way to do that. Because from our perspective, we don't know their motives. We don't know their individuality. And so we're applying this very averaged lens to it. What are the odds that someone, it, it, like if we say that you want to be a, a, a programmer, we say, well, only... One in 10 people get a job in Silicon Valley and you tell me, hey, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley because I'm going to get a job as a software engineer. And I'd say, boy, that seems like a really risky choice. One in 10? Well, that's just playing the odds across everybody. And what, what dark horses do is by, because they know their individuality, they can accurately judge fit better. So it's not, it's, like, it's not one in 10. If you know what motivates you and what you're good at and you understand the job that's there it's not a guarantee, but you can know, like, actually, I have a really good shot at being great at this. And so we see them recognizing choices and making them. And then the, the third aspect of it is, and this was actually pretty cool to me, and it was like eye-opening, is that often when we think about choice, we think about the choices that people show us. That actually, okay, you can do X or you can do Y. And we're like, oh, cool, that's choice. Well, not really, that's just picking. They've already decided what the options are. But it's a little bit like... um. You know, the first time you go to like a burger joint and they're like, oh, well, you can get on the menu and you realize there's a whole off menu that they're not telling you. But if you ask for it, you can get it. You know, (laughs) these dark horses show us this over and over again that, in fact, it's not just about doing what people give you. It's actually making your own options. Like I said, like the Susan Rogers, if she wants to be trained as a sound engineer, well, go to one of the schools that trained you. Well, that's not open to her. So she's going to work her way through to be a secretary at the place and and make a deal that she can sit in on classes when they're available. That wasn't that wasn't
0: an on menu option, but she's going to figure it out. And I think one concern that people have who have been gro- that have grown up in the standardization covenant and the the parents of these individuals is that if they go off this 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 off-path route, like they're not going to be able to support themselves. They're not gonna have health insurance. They're, they're gonna, it's all it's gonna be super risky. But like Susan's a great example. Like she found a job where she could, you know, pay the rent, pay for food, but at the same time, she was learning a skill. She she got her foot in the door. And I, I think that was you, you made that a good point. Like a lot of these dark courses, they weren't just like these like careless, daredevil risk taping type. They were actually just very smart about taking smart risks.
1: That it's exactly right. So once once you see their. Paths through the dark horse lens, and you start to know about who they are, and then you look at the choices they're making. You go, "Oh, that's really, really that's smart. That's a, that's a very clever. You've minimized actual risk. The riskier thing is to put yourself in a situation that is like a terrible fit for who you are, and then hope that things turn out." Um, but one to your point, I think it's really important that um, when we think about things like fulfillment, if we're not careful, it can be interpreted as like this is very selfish, free riding kind of like do your thing and it doesn't really matter. It's just, it was never the case. Not only is it not okay, you you, you have a responsibility to be responsible. And when you look at the way that Dark horses made choices, what was interesting is you're trying to maximize fit. That's first thing. But then what was really cool, and I think this is really valuable for all of us, is you can play a little game of can I live with the worst case scenario of this choice? So, you know, nowadays I have two kids, which means I have some financial responsibility. You know, there are things that are no longer options for me because of because of the life I chose to live and I want to live. So if if I I have a chance to make a, a a jump, but one of those worst case scenarios is losing everything, and my family suffers, then I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that one because I'm unwilling to live with the worst case scenario. And then what you do is you go to the next best fit. And what you're what they keep doing is saying. How do I get to that place where I can live with the worst case scenario and I have a good fit? And so as a you know, as a parent, I look at that as well now and I think, so how do I know that my boys who you know are college and, and since graduate, like, how do I know the things they're doing right now are actually a path of fulfillment or just screwing off? And for me, it always comes back to that idea of taking responsibility for the choices. So when when I think of the classic case of, you know moving to Los Angeles to be an actor and parents are like, oh my goodness, this is going to be the end. What I would ask them is like, okay, wait, um, it's one thing if they're in LA, they've got seven roommates, they're they're busing tables in the evening and they're pay, they're they're making it work, even though for you, you go, wow, that just seems like you're struggling. That's a sign that this is a fulfilling path. Either they're going to learn something or it's going to work out. If on the other hand, they're like, mom, dad, can you pay my rent? Mom, dad, can you get me a car? Can you get like that's not that's not fulfillment right and it it won't turn into it so this idea of knowing who you are and being willing to take responsibility for the choices is a really important sign that you're on the right path
0: all right so dark horse they don't pick they choose and choice means sometimes coming with your own choice that no one ever saw before. So look for micro motivations, choose occupations that uh, fit you and your micro motivations, or maybe your, and also your current circumstance. If you have kids, you might have the job might not fit you anymore because of you have the obligation to them. Um, The next step is know your strategies.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, I get excited about this because this one just confronts head on this ridiculous myth in our society about the nature of talent. In, 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 the way we've been taught in our existing system is, you try things, and when you're not good at them, the the response is, well, maybe I'm not cut out for that. Maybe I'm not, you know, that good at it, and I'm going to move on. I mean, that's that's a you know a simplistic explanation, but I think it's close. What we saw with dark horses, and it was just it was so remarkable, is once they've figured out what they care about and they've made a choice, well, you still have to accomplish things. It's not passive. So now you got to get good at stuff. You got to get good at things that you care about. And what they would do is they know they care about this, so they're not going to let go of it. And what you'd see is they'll try a strategy and then it doesn't work. They'll just keep cycling through strategies. And from the outside, it looks incredibly inefficient, but they're not doing the same thing over and over again. They'll just keep swapping out new strategies until the one that clicks and it clicks and they go. And what, what they teach you is that real achievement is not about some innate talent. It is about the right fit between your individuality and the strategy. And there are always multiple ways to to get to that finish line, always. What I love about it is, it it completely changes how I think about how I'm gonna make progress as an individual. And it, it was just, we saw in everything from like, you know, Rubik's Cubes to Master Psalms, how you're gonna pass the hardest test in the world, basically. Almost nobody does it the same way. It's just incredible.
0: But I, one thing I've noticed, uh, particularly you know, since I'm online, and you I kind of run, interact with like the online business world, online entrepreneurs, where you, you have these people talking about living an unconventional life, and they're you know whatever. But they're often they're still looking for a strategy that that sort of fits the standardized covenant like they're looking for like the thing that's like it'll work no matter what they'll, they'll they they buy courses like you know pay thousands of dollars for this online course <laughs> like here's follow these 10 steps and you will yeah. be su- uh, successful in your unconventional life yeah
1: no i mean look that's why that's why when we see that happen it, it's always um an indicator that you're actually lacking a, a deeper understanding of who you are because the as you, as you truly understand that, that becomes the anchor that you can say, look, I, I know this isn't going to work. And and if, if you don't really have a good understanding of yourself, then you will fall back on, let me just see how society tells me to do this, because that what, what's your substitute? If you find yourself relying on the tried and true because you're hoping you're just playing the odds at that point, it's it's okay. Just step back and realize you got more work to do on understanding what truly matters to you and what you're good at.
0: Yeah, when I, I get asked quite a bit, like how do I start a podcast like, and, and make it successful? And it's like, <laughs> man, I don't know. Like I started start, start ten years ago because like the internet was completely different when I started, and I don't know what worked for me is probably not going to work for you. Just uh, I don't know. But they, think
1: about what you did. So this is what I think is so remarkable. So you're you obviously have a tr- uh, you know lots of success, but I'm going to go ahead and wager that this was not like a there's not a blueprint. You no. you knew you cared about it and you got started. And you make choices and, and you, you learn from people, you look at other folks and you think this, you always want to take advice and then you got to do stuff that you know works for you and try it out and let go of stuff that doesn't. And that sort of authenticity to who you are becomes fundamental to your ability to, to be as good as possible at what you're doing.
0: Well, another Part of this dark horse covenant uh, sort of tactic is you have to ignore the destination, which is like completely counter from the standardization covenant where you have to know, like, you know, when you're like you said, like your kids, when they're eight years old, they're getting asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like they know their destination with a dark horse. They typically don't. I think what's really important here
1: is destination isn't the same thing as goals. You should have goals. But goals, when they're useful, are like, we call them like smart goals, (laughs) specific, (laughs) measurable, actionable, whatever. Yeah, it's one thing to say like, okay, I want to start a podcast. Well, there's certain things I need to get better at. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to learn how to interview. I'm going to learn how to whatever. Okay. But yeah, if you start talking about things that are 10, 15 years out that are contingent on a bunch of other things, first of all, that destination, I guarantee you won't look like that by the time you get there. The other thing is, is it may be an actual terrible fit for who you really are. Um, And so what dark horses do, and I think is, I mean, just profoundly important, is by ignoring, you'd never hear them say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Say, that's just a dumb question. Because it will corrupt your decision-making process. Because the second I latch on to something far in the distant, and I don't really know why I'm doing it, um, I lose sight of the fact that every single day I have choices to make. Every day. We all do, big and small. And they need to be made based on a a real understanding of who you are, what matters to you, what motivates you. And it is that consistent ability to make those kind of choices that will carve out your path, that'll give you the best chance to be excellent because you are fulfilled. The quickest way to wreck
0: that is to pick what society is telling you to be 10 years from now and start making choices based on that. Yeah, I think you quoted Paul Graham in the book. He says a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that he's encountered, they don't have your plans like they're just they've got a goal they're looking at the next goal that's right, yeah. that's pretty much of it of course
1: right like that it, it's how you, it, the truth is is anybody that's been successful this is how you become really successful and it's only in in hindsight that it all looks like it's stitched together in some perfect preordained plan it but but the reality is the most important choices most of us make when we feel like we're leading successful lives are these incredible twists and turns that you just never would have thought would be there for you and you would have been blind to had you not been looking for them.
0: Right. You use the concept of gradient ascent. It's like how, yeah. how people can it, climb
1: mountains. Yeah, right? isn't that? Like that's, that's, we couldn't help it. They the were scientists and we had, we had to slip back into, you know, when we think about how we model complex problems that don't have solutions, it, it feels intractable. But actually, the thing called gradient ascent in, in, in computer science, it turns out you can find the answer to anything. You just have the algorithm take a few steps in a direction look around and say, look, am I making progress toward the peak or am I going down? And if you're making progress, go forward again. You can you can make that step-by-step process and, and actually maximize a mathematical solution. And it actually, I think, is a good metaphor for life. You don't actually have to already know the peak you're aiming for in order to get there. You just don't.
0: And what's nice about the, these the sort of four ways to figure out the the thing that'll bring you fulfillment. It's very fluid, right? It's not like I mean this. Your motives could change as you get older. Like sure. what your motives were when you're 20 might be different when you're 35,
1: for sure. And and what's nice is that um and, and I hope they are. What, what a boring life if the exact same thing. What 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 I think is really powerful about this is you know I have a a, a colleague and friend who I was just with a couple of days ago who was explaining that you know forever she was in love with spreadsheets like that was her thing and she said she woke up one day after like a decade of being awesome at this stuff in her work and was like, I I can't touch another spreadsheet. I literally just hate it. It was like her spreadsheet moment. Now, had she not understood that it wasn't about spreadsheets, it was actually about, there was like a, there's a logic to what it was doing. So it was the logic that she liked. So she was able to immediately like, you know what? Great. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to do something different. So she was able to engineer this consistent fulfillment, even though the environment's changing. And so this sense of understanding that that's how fulfillment works allows you, like if you're in a job and the and they're like, whoop, the job's done. You loved it. You thought you'd find a perfect fit. Guess what? If you have a good understanding of these basic principles, you can make the next move. Similarly, if suddenly I'm just like, you know what? I I don't, I'm not as competitive as I used to be. Okay, well, I can be aware of that because I'm feeling it. I can feel it in, in my day-to-day experience. I can reassess and I can make a new choice. So to me, this understanding of pursuing fulfillment to, to achieve excellence puts so much control in an individual's hands. Regardless of circumstances, you can carve out a fulfilling life.
0: And it sounds like you can even apply this in professions that have that more standardization covenant hierarchy, like a doctor or attorney or uh, yeah. a corporate suit. Yeah, even when yeah, even when even when even
1: when the gatekeeping aspect is really rigid, it's super hard. You're not becoming a doctor without going through some specific things. We, we see it all the time is when you get into the profession, you realize well, it's almost crazy that we call it the same thing. The range of things you could do and still be a lawyer is remarkable. And so the ability to still say like, even though I've, I've come through this straight and narrow because I had to, I can still keep optimizing even within that profession in ways that can be everything from completely unsatisfying to incredibly fulfilling.
0: And what's nice about that, I think it, this idea is it takes pressure off young, or it can take pressure off young people. They really understand it. It's like, okay, you're 24. You don't have to have this all figured out now. You you have a long time to figure it out. It's like a lifetime, it's a lifetime process.
1: It is a process. I mean, uh, that almost seems cliche, but it, it really is. And <clears throat> the thing is, is that I feel like, and, and, and you know, with my own kids, I mean, this is always the litmus test for me is would I do I really want them to live by this book? And, and I can honestly say yes. I feel extremely confident that this is a way for them to live the kind of life they want to live. It's empowering. It can be a little scary. Like I said, you lose lose sight of the the, the things that you've been told all your life are, are the sure signs of of how you have success. But once you get into the habit of this, of being true to who you are and learning how to make choices and, and learn from them quick, not only is it do you end up places that are just super interesting and, and, and successful. But the, 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 the journey is actually interesting. It's, it's actually enjoyable. And, and I think nowadays, what more could you ever want as a person or as a parent than to have yourself or your children be able to have a life that, that is that rich
0: and meaningful? So we got the standardization covenant. It was created to benefit institutions. It allows us to educate a lot of people at once, hire people, at you know all a bunch of people all at once, but then you have this dark horse covenant that's very focused on the individual and it's personalized. So there's sort of this conflict there. How do you think we can resolve that, particularly in, in in the world of education, where you know you you grow up, you you get put into a system where you're sitting in the desk, the teacher lectures the same thing to to all the kids. How can you develop a dark horse education within that system? Yeah,
1: look, I mean, it's. Pretty simple. I mean, under this new covenant, the truth is what we're changing now is the purpose of these systems. You take something like education; the purpose of education is actually to batch process kids and sort them into predetermined outcomes that society has said they want. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's that's what we do. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't have amazing teachers. Doesn't mean we have caring adults. But it is the purpose of the system. Well, if you now want a system who sees its job to understand and help develop each kid to their full potential, and more importantly, help these kids figure this out for themselves. That's a very different system. And now you could almost think like, well, that seems impossible. But the good news is with my think tank, I mean, we actually engage in this kind of systems change work every day. There are some remarkable things going on. And at the core of this big change in the purpose of education is actually a focus on more personalized systems that care about individuality. And what, this is almost crazy to me because what's odd is we figured out how to personalize almost every other aspect of our lives. But when it comes to our kids and their education, we seem shockingly content with the status quo, but we shouldn't. Our education system doesn't match our capabilities for personalization. And frankly, we're letting our kids down right now. So, I mean, what are some things that have been done to, I mean, just sort of a highlight of some of those things? Yeah, no, look, I, I am wildly optimistic about where our public education system will be in, in a decade or so. Like, it, We know the purpose is wrong. We're trying like crazy. We have the tech to be able to do something different. So here's here's the handful of things that have to shift that are shifting. I'll, actually, I'll, I'll tell you the one that I think is must have and is, is already happening, which is you have to shift toward what we call mastery learning, which means allowing kids to learn at their own pace until they truly understand the material rather than just passing kids from grade to grade as long as they don't fail. And the good news is that mastery learning is already taking hold all around the country. In fact, there's actually, you think about something like Khan Academy, where basically anyone can can do that online and schools use it all the time. But you go to something like the state of Idaho, which is literally committing to making mastery learning the core of how things happen. And what's so great about it is when you shift away from a fixed amount of time and then you just rank kids with a grade um, to mastery learning, what we see without fail is that kids were turn out to be just far more capable than we ever imagined. That like with just a little more time and support, what one kid can do academically, most kids can do. And so for me, that's not only good for the individual. When you think about the kind of talent we're about to unleash with, with a system that's focused on mastery, it, it makes me pretty um, hopeful about the
0: future. Well, Todd, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Sure. You could go to toddrose.com or on
0: and follow me on Twitter at... Uh, at L Todd Rose. Fantastic. Well, Todd Rose, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. My guest today was Todd Rose. He's the co-author of the book Dark Horse. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, toddrose.com. That's Todd with 2Ds. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about money and career, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS, get a month trial for free. After you signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate Appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on itunes or stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is brett mckay reminding you not only to listen to the a podcast but put what you've heard into action